2: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
1: For long has been told, the ancient machinations of old, our holy spiritual lost the cold. The void embrace ripped from reality and placed the cold feet of the mother spirit. Skull of my mentor, whom toiled in the field, Blown, bone of small tooth made to be wheeled. Distal portion, twisted neck. Rend down the dog into foul mess. Picking from the froth beings made of wrath to angels of bone. Simona and Alex welcome to their own
2: Episode of Archeo Animals. As always, I'm Alex Fitzpatrick, and with me,
3: Simona Falanga.
2: And today, we are talking about something that been talking. We've managed to mention in like every episode of this podcast so far. Uh, we're talking about ritual.
3: <laughs>
2: Simona, how excited are you?
3: <laughs> are you? <okay? laughs>
2: okay (laughs) so i think the best way to start off is to talk about what actually is ritual which you know confounds archaeologists to this day if we're gonna be really honest
3: could be an entire episode in its own right just what is ritual
2: So you kind of have the idea of ritual as this running joke in archaeology. Um, If you don't know, if you're not in the field, uh, the running joke is that if you don't understand something, if you look at a site, you don't know what it's there for, you just say it's ritual and it takes care of everything because ritual can be anything. Simona, do you want to explain what ritual actually is or you know, kind of the agreed upon
3: definition for now? Well, I think really because... With things such as ritual, like really, it depends whom you ask. You know, you can see ritual, sort of this system of beliefs and behavior that work together and I guess the, the key here is systematic action so something that is performed over and over again with a specific intent in mind mm-hmm. but then again I could be saying that about me brushing my teeth in the morning yeah so that's also not very helpful
2: I mean we also do like modern day we do call that kind of stuff rituals and like your morning ritual and stuff like that so it, it gets a little convoluted so we have probably the definition that we'll be using in this episode is that it's the idea of that beliefs and behaviors when they work together and they function together uh, in a very specific way that's a ritual so it's kind of like the action uh acting upon those beliefs
3: uh and stuff that sounds about right yes <laughs> so i guess really yeah for all intents and purposes it is sort of a, a structured repetitive action but i guess with a. The- a religious sphere in mind yeah
2: but you know the with that in mind uh if you know we already can't really decide on a definition of ritual within archaeology the i guess the next question is then how do we even know we're looking at ritual because again everything can be ritual then anything from you know a couple of bodies to uh, a couple of stones could be ritual uh, so with zooarchaeology, uh, it's a little bit different. Um, we have something called... Well, it used to be called special deposits, and now they're referred to as associated bone groups.
3: I always thought that was just animal bone groups. Oh, really? Yeah, no, they're associated <laughs> bone groups.
2: <laughs> okay. Is there, oh, wait, unless I'm wrong. No,
3: I think... No, 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 I'm probably wrong.
2: <laughs> I, I, I've read in text, I've read it as associated bone groups. Uh, so unless there's a schism within the zooarchaeology community where we're fighting over that as well.
3: That's <laughs> probably because I've always seen it as the acronym, like yeah. ABGs. I thought, yeah, animal bone, animal bone group, sure.
2: To be fair, yeah, like it does make more sense because you really only use the acronym ABGs when you're talking about animal bones, but... Yeah, so the idea that they're associated bone groups is that, you know, they're all in one context. They were all probably laid out together. And that's where the kind of ritual
3: aspect of it gets into place. So at the end of the day, when, it, when we talk about archaeology, it just all comes down to context.
2: Context is everything. Context.
3: Have <laughs> that as a jingle. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, we need to get a soundboard where you push a button and it goes context. Uh. <laughs> anyway um, so any other things you want to talk about in terms of how we can pinpoint ritual although let's be real
3: it's way way more complicated than that uh, I don't know just like thinking a couple of things I don't know, off the top of my head I don't know, for example I don't know, if you're using animal skulls as part of your ritual mm-hmm. and then you're just carefully depositing them Somewhere, saying you're closing a water deposit, or putting them under the floorboards of your house, or something. Chances are you would have probably kept those bones away from animals that would have gnawed and chewed on it. Because mm-hmm. if you assign it any sort of special significance, you perhaps wouldn't leave them out for the dog.
2: Yeah, probably not. <laughs> Although maybe there is a ritual in the past where you do actually give your bones to the dog. We
3: don't know. Okay, you know, you know, you're just going post processionist. Yeah, don't you? I know. Well, that's the thing about ritual; you <laughs> can go into circles with those. You know, <laughs> I mean, so like literally, with how do I identify, like uh, a anim- ritual with animal bones? Actually, you don't. It's just there is no evidence to prove that it was not ritual. Therefore, it must be ritual. I mean, realistically, that's the whole
2: thing about archaeology. We really can't necessarily prove any of this stuff. So, I just, I think I just but- had an ex- existential crisis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, back up. All archaeologists yeah, go home. Yeah, I, archaeology's I, over. Archaeology's We're over. done. Uh, back up.
2: It was nice. It was good, right? It was yeah, good, right? I all mean, well, we had. Okay. It. Don't don't get too excited.
1: But yeah, um, yeah. post processional is the only archaeology that should.
2: Exist. Where are my post-professionals? I mean, professionals. I'm. We're here. Yeah, I'm firing on all cylinders, guys. <laughs> but yeah, I mean. <laughs> the lack of nom marks definitely can be an indicator um i mean you are right like for the most part i think we can all agree that if you were taking bones and using them in a ritual you probably wouldn't leave them anywhere like just anywhere you would probably have a a certain place for it like very certain types of locations things like that um like thresholds thresholds are like the
3: thing for rituals isn't it well that's the one thing that I was going to mention so again like uh going on from context being very important it's like you know if you find a dog skeleton mm-hmm. anywhere on site it, it's a dog that died and someone buried I mean it doesn't necessarily have to be a ritual for all you know that dog could have been actually eaten or skinned for fur and, and people would have, wouldn't have necessarily assigned any sort of significance to the dog dying. Mm-hmm. But then if you find said dog at the threshold of a building, that takes a whole different meaning entirely. Because it's something that we do see quite a lot, and actually spanning all sorts of geographical regions and time periods, because we're looking at the Neolithic in Italy and Kazakhstan and... In Sweden during the Bronze Age and even like in Iron Age Britain, you do sort of systematically find dogs associated with thresholds of buildings. Mm-hmm. So, of course, yeah, your dog skull in your waste pit, just, just some dog that died, was processed for whatever reason and then just tossed in there. Dog skull at the threshold of a building, different meaning entirely. Yeah. So and then, of course, you know, there's the whole like uh, interpretations that have been made for dog remains within thresholds and like maybe because it has something to do with how dogs are associated with being guardians of the underworld or embodiments of loyalty. Mm-hmm. But that we don't necessarily know for sure because cultures that have left us a written record, then we might be able to argue that. But for some prehistoric cultures, that's just us using our own bias because in a way that's how we we view dogs today. So the the symbol of loyalty. So that would be us sort of applying our concept of dogs to other cultures which doesn't necessarily work
2: yeah i mean i think that's like one of the key issues with ritual is that ritual itself is so experiential that a lot of aspects of it we really can't understand because you really have to you really have to be in the moment, um, you know, if you see these dog bones placed at the thresholds of, you know, settlements or enclosures or something, we can at least see that archaeologically. But there's so many other aspects of uh, this assumed ritual that we'll never find because, you know, if we just weren't
3: there, we don't have that kind of experience because I think you'll never really know why they did yeah. it. I mean, you can speculate, of course, yeah. but you'll never really know. So again, like with the Iron Age of Britain, you can look at the written record. Of course, the Iron Age populations didn't really leave a written record. So you could go off what the Romans have written. But the, what the Romans passed down to us is inherently biased. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've got to you gotta take them with a pinch of salt as well.
2: So you can't trust anyone. That's what we're trying to say. In archaeology, you just can't trust anyone.
3: And again, like pack up, go home.
2: Oh, man, that's a really pessimistic episode. (laughs) But yeah, no, I mean, that's the other thing about ritual as well is that, you know, the way you look at it, even if we do agree that we can't necessarily truly understand what they were seeing and what they were feeling, what they were thinking when they were doing their rituals, there's some aspects of it that we can at least pull out a bit and kind of see, you know, what was in what was important to people in the past you know what was what were they trying to do because that's the other thing with rituals there's something very um what's the word uh they're being utilized for some reason they're being applied for some reason why are they doing these rituals it's always something usually that's kind of out of their control
1: but it is interesting how you talk about ritual in terms of dealing with things that people can't actually change where, you know, we kind of imagine ritual as being something you do every day, you know, like, because you want to do it. You know, like, I think question really is, when we colloquially talk about ritual, there is a kind of a difference between that kind of ritual, as in you do something for a specific reason, and it's kind of like it's ingrained in you and you have to do it almost, with what seems to be in archaeology, ritual is something where we can't really have a material based reason for doing it you know and i I kind of feel that sometimes ritual comes out of a space where processual archaeology tried to look at a resource management perspective of history Mm -hmm. you know how far yeah here and you know uh, how much energy was expended and therefore ritual was a way of kind of oh, well, if it doesn't fit into this narrow perspective of um, these resources cost this much calories to go and I have to go this many kilometers to come back, You know, what am I going to actually get? That's where ritual kind of fits in. And I think that's why ritual to me is not very subversive. It's not very interesting in archaeology if it's just used in this way. I think it's more, far more interesting to use it to actually evaluate how ineffective we are at talking about very deep pasts, and and I think you know there was that was that ladder rung thing where it's like further up the ladder is where you can describe you know you can describe more abstract concepts from the material that you have, and somebody put the ladder around. I can't remember who that is, but it's difficult in reality, to infer these belief systems from the materiality. And that's something that's really important uh, when we are talking about ritual. I'll pass it back over to you.
2: I mean, if you just wanted to trash on my PhD research, you could have just told me.
1: Oh, right, okay. This Is, tr- is this no, trashing No, it actually isn't, because right. I know
2: right. that actually I agree with you, because, I mean, I'll talk about this a little bit later in the episode, at least specifics, but what I'm finding as someone who's specifically doing a whole PhD on kind of uh, extrapolating ritual or you know whether or not it is indeed ritual from animal bones from a huge assortment of animal bones uh is that yeah it is a lot trickier and uh, it really highlights the kind of limitations of archaeology in particular zooarchaeology you know it's what when you have all these animal bones and you can't really say they're natural deposits and you but you can say that they were most of them were anthropologically you know put there uh, but you don't have any other information on it, you know, what can you say? Like, that's that's kind of just what's kind of happening in my research. So I agree with you. I just like to um, complain about you.
1: <laughs> you know, place and location is actually often what we use to kind of justify ritual. I know there's quite a few good examples mm, of that, yeah. uh, where ritual is because of place. Um, I don't know if you had any examples. I mean, but
2: again, my, my research is actually... I, I, you know, I do caves, so... I
1: honestly haven't been reading it. Cool. research. Cool. Great. So no, it's
2: fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. You
1: know, whatever. Your research is special. Your research is special. Don't worry. But hey, um, the APN I'm is sorry. looking I, for I, a new I, producer. I, <laughs> you can't fire me on live on your <laughs> own podcast. Oh, dear. Per Simona has been sitting here listening to us the whole time. Simona, please rescue this episode.
3: <laughs> that, that, no pressure, though. <laughs> so what can we learn from ritual bones about past <laughs> belief systems <laughs> everything and nothing
2: that's what we basically ha- learned from this episode <laughs> ah. it's confusing but no that's the thing though i mean as, as even though you know we're all doing bits on bits um it is really confusing and i think this just highlights it ritual can be a very tricky subject because it can be so easily misused in archaeological interpretation uh it- it's, it, you know, it's,
3: it's everything and nothing. And actually one point I was especially keen on making is that, of course, if you're trying to reconstruct the ritual belief system of a population that has not left a written record behind, what archaeologists in general tend to do is just go off the ethnographic record and see what populations today are doing. But that's a, a, a whole other can of worms in a way, because it's something like that is very interesting also quite dangerous to use and I think we'll be talking more about that after the break
0: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide So why are some of us still stigmatising people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
4: Sick of being upsold at gyms?
0: My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel any time. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.
2: And we're back. Uh, we are talking about ritual this episode and going off into very ups- abstract, very conceptual kind of stuff because that's what ritual is. Uh- <laughs> yeah,
3: and I think I was about to go on a tangent about overusing ethnography in uh, trying to interpret archaeological ritual.
2: Yeah, that is true. I mean, it makes sense why we would turn to ethnography, and I think in some cases it does work. Uh, but th- yeah, like you're right, um, there is definitely a, a danger of overusing
3: it. Well, because no, it is very, something very interesting to use and to read about, by all means. But uh, it makes some pretty big assumptions, saying, "Oh, so this prehistoric culture in uh, uh, what is now Iraq." Uh, used to do something in this particular way and we think it's is for X reason because there's this one culture in Zimbabwe that does something similar. If you know what I mean.
2: Yeah, no. There's um yeah, there's a lot of dangers in kind of just, you know mix like you know, mix and matching cultures, you know, just because someone does it here, you can't necessarily extrapolate that over to the other side of the
3: world and say No they so- probably do it. Yeah. And also sort of using present the present day sort of record to interpret prehistory, you're making the big assumption that that culture that you're looking at has remained unchanged for 2000 years. Yeah. Which, trust me, they probably they, they haven't. But uh,
2: another danger that uh, I find, especially when it comes to animals, is kind of conflating ritual at feasting. Sometimes they can be one and the same. Let's be real. There's a lot of ritual feasting that goes on. Um, a lot of times, when you find uh, animal bones that have been, you know, butchered and cooked and everything, among uh, more funerary contexts, a lot of times the interpretation is all well, they were having some kind of funerary feast, things like that. But I think there's also a slight danger in conflating the two,
3: because not, of course, not every feast is going to be a ritual feast. Sometimes, sometimes you just got to have a barbecue. Yeah, I know. Oh, man, I could go for a barbecue right now. I mean, and again, depending on which way you look at it, that, that is pretty ritual. Yeah, that is true. Oh, gosh, we're, we're really just going in circles this episode. And then that's ritual for you. So I think that's probably, like, if you leave with anything from this episode, is that, yeah, ritual is Everything just one big circle. True. You could argue about it for 10,000 years. But then again, we are archaeologists, and uh, I... I I'm an adamant believer that the collective noun for archaeologists should be an argument of archaeologists.
2: Speaking of feasting, though, uh, we <laughs> should also talk about the fact that um, when it comes to animals and ritual, there are some kinds of animals that, I guess, signify that maybe there's something, oh, I hate to say this, but ritual-y, ritual going on in there. Especially uh, between domestic animals and wild animals. Uh, so, Simona. Well, okay. So, there's this whole big... When we talk about ritual in general with archaeology, there's a bit of a maybe debate, I guess, on this idea of, you know, is a ritual area, is a place used for ritual, is that always going to be separated from the domestic sphere? Will they always be two separate things in the sense that, you know, churches and houses are two different things? Or, you know, do they ever kind of coincide and become one sphere? So there is a lot of talk about that. And uh, something that I know from working in like the later prehistoric period is that there seems to be kind of a, a shift so in the Neolithic you get more ritual e places uh, that are more uh, in wild areas, natural areas and then it slowly as we get into the Iron Age seems to go more into domestic. There's more ritual e things in uh, settlements and stuff like that. But I think there's still this kind of like association with wild and natural things that we tend to make with ritual in
3: archaeology. Right, so I think that like, it's not unlike or maybe they're completely unlike. I don't know how certain depictions say, like in um, rock art, uh, you have a yeah. shift. For example, if you look at Scandinavian rock art, a lot of a, a lot of which is found like well, it's found all over Scandinavia, really. But like the parts I think I'm particularly referring to is all the rock art found in Alta, just sort of like in mm-hmm. Arctic Norway, and you see yeah. a shift because they've been going. Like this rock art date back to thousands of years. And, like, and again, for thousands of years, they were being drawn, were carved really on rocks. But you do see what is being depicted shift because you do have sort of wildlife, which is sort of omnipresent. So you do get different species of deer and reindeer depicted. But while in the earlier phases, you see a lot of hunting scenes and boats and you sort of like move to more domestic scenes, as you get to sort of the Bronze Age period. So I guess maybe sort of like that. Yeah, no, I mean, there's definitely something, I guess, going on there. And, the
2: thing, you know, it could be one the same, really. Um, but it's, it's kind of interesting to see that kind of shift taking place where, you know, again, as we like to say, everything is
3: ritual. So even the domestic can be ritual, I guess. Yeah. But I guess sort of the way you look at it is maybe because the, the shift of what is sort of sacred, I'm just going to beat myself up over this later, over what is sacred uh, may have shifted over time, because like, while before maybe you solely relied on hunting and gathering, mm-hmm. of course, a lot of your ritual would be technically, because again, we're just going on a massive speculation here, it would be like your ritual would be finalized to saying having a good hunt. Yeah. Well, as you move towards the Neolithic and sort of later phases of prehistory when sort of agriculture started to set in, of course, all your ritualistic actions would be perhaps more aimed at a successful harvest. Mm-hmm. So of course your imagery changes and your places of worship changes, but now I've just realized that it's got nearly nothing to do with what you are saying because it reverts to wild places in the Iron Age. It's just, there's no,
2: it's just everything. (laughs) I think that's what we're really just getting down to. It's everything, ritual's everything. There's no way to really pinpoint what's ritual and what's not, and we should all give up. But what we can say is probably ritual, at least, is probably my favorite thing, which is combined deposits. I love human and animal burials. I think they're very interesting and cool. And maybe I'm a little biased because that's exactly what I'm working on right now. But, you know, it's cool, right? But then,
3: like, let's take so like a burial, say like the one of the human buried with their cat in Cyprus. Yeah. I think it was about 9,000 years ago give or take, if I remember correctly. Mm. But say that was just a person that was buried with their pet. Would that be a ritual?
2: I mean, well, is do we consider funerary things, rituals, like burial rites?
3: I mean, yes, when you say so. And I guess in that particular example as well, it looked very much like the cat had been purposely killed and placed in the grave. yeah. Which I'm sure the owner wouldn't have been overly keen on, but (laughs) they're like, please, if I die prematurely, do not kill my pets. Don't.
2: Yeah, just crack me, crack me open and shove it in when it dies naturally in like five years.
3: Oh no, I've got it all. I want a proper like shrine with like ancient Egyptian murals. That's for Bastet. That is. And representations of her and Kernanos and Sandy.
2: That would be nice.
3: Yeah, so so, so now you know. <laughs> it's, all, it's all over the web now. But I mean, like... I will not be denied now. That's
2: valid. It's It's been spoken out there. So the thing about human animal burials is that that's also part of that um, kind of ABGs thing we were talking about, associated bone groups. So the fact that they were possibly buried together uh, kind of indicates that something perhaps different than the norm is happening. Um, another thing that I like about that kind of concept is the idea of talking about personhood and you know how do people in the past see animals versus how do they see them as humans. Uh, there's a lot of different sites uh, like Hornish Point where they think that maybe some of these animals, because uh, a lot of them are usually young, uh, juvenile animals were killed in sacrifice as a proxy for humans uh, because of similar treatment uh, of the bodies. And I just, you know, I just like all the weird philosophical questions you get in archaeology when you
3: start going down this path. Yeah, it's like it's one, another interesting thing, and I really do hate to bring it back to the Romans, but it just seems like, seems to be all I know about. Just some recent studies that have been uh, made looking specifically at Romano-British cremations, Mm -hmm. I found that a lot of the sort of human cremations were actually mixed with animals. And so like some of the findings that it seemed like certain species tend to be associated more frequently with a particular sex, Oh, okay. So, for instance, the majority of um male uh, cremation burials were associated with cattle remains, mm-hmm. while women were associated with birds. Oh, that's interesting. Do you know
2: what kind of birds in particular?
3: I would have no idea. I'm not sure they managed to tell in the first place, because anything sort of cremated and personal it's completely out of my depth. I was like, nope. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that, that's incredibly valid. But I guess the idea that the fact, even if you can't really specify what kind of birds they are, the fact that they're actually being cremated is probably a red flag in terms of, you know, hey, something different is going on here because we don't regularly cremate birds, I feel like.
3: No, but it's like literally they would have cremated... I'm not entirely sure. Like, they cremated both at the same time. Like, fact is that the, the urn would have contained the remains of both. Yeah. The person and the animal. Hmm... So whether they just cremated the bird at a later date, but I will toss that in there as well. But hopefully not. <laughs> well, I mean, it could also have different kind of signifiers.
2: Like probably the one kind of site that we really need a name drop in this episode when we're talking about stuff like ABGs and stuff is the Daneberry Pits uh, in Britain, um, where they do have these mixed burials in pits where you would find uh, bits of human remains, animal bones, and you'd also get some pottery, bits of iron, uh, grain. And so one of the things that uh, archaeologists thought of when it came to interpretation is that maybe this has to do with fertility or, re- or uh, regeneration rituals. So even though these are burials, and you could argue they're not necessarily ritual, uh, it's the intention behind it, I guess. If any. Yeah, no, they could also be just tossing
3: it. You don't know. I mean, I'm not not speaking about like Danebury per se, but also because even with human burials, um, in a way we are presuming that the population that we're looking at would have given the same sort of value to burying a person that we would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because then you could be looking at some culture that actually think, oh no, once the person is dead, you know, it's just the remains. It actually doesn't matter because the spirit has gone off wherever, so the remains here will just put them there. And I mean, I guess
2: it's also a question of like, Care how are the remains treated if they're just kind of tossed willy-nilly. We'll be able to kind of see that in the archaeological record. Uh, But if they were actually cared for, like in Danebury, um, one of the things that they think uh, happened to some of these remains is uh, excarnation, which is basically the act of defleshing skeletons uh, to eventually disarticulate them or, you know, kind of take the bones apart so it's not just one whole skeleton. It's just a pile of bones. Uh, So it could be done annual so a lot of times you'll find like cut marks on the bones that's like specifically you know really careful kind of skinning to get the skin off uh or other times it's just natural they like just leave them out for any kind of scavengers or just the weather to do it and uh so what's this
3: about a sky burial (laughs) (laughs) uh i think it's something i read in the news a while ago that um a tourist uh in Scotland, had petitioned so the Scottish government like for, for him to have a sky burial on top of a mountain. And Scotland was like, nope. How dare they? I want to have a sky burial. <laughs> nope.
1: <laughs> it's just because we've got an island called Sky up here in Scotland and we just don't want them all to be buried in that one island. That's what the problem is. He should have been very specific about what he meant by sky burial.
2: <laughs> i mean i want my remains <laughs> tossed into my old pit in uh orkney
1: what it's just, or- <laughs> yeah no no no. i mean like really as in huh no I, I yeah no i remember you mentioning on the last episode you were working up in the far reaches of the north of scotland
2: it'll just be funny you know
1: would you not want to be cremated and not take up more space. No, like, I, want them to, you know,
2: I want them to go to the site before the excavation team shows up for the summer's dig and then throw my body in there. So it's like a pleasant surprise. It's like opening up a kinder egg.
1: No, I, I get that, but like, um, you know, when we talk about future burials, a lot of the time we, we talk about the, you know, the need for uh, being ecological with our burials. Uh, I don't know how you guys feel about the ritual of either cremation or burial in a coffin do you think that uh, perhaps these ideas of how people should be buried um, will represent something going forward as well do you think there's a st- do you think there's same possibly some of the same kind of discussions about who should be cremated versus who should be buried uh, occurring in the past as well
2: I mean, I think definitely Um, I know that, you know, you see kind of the the kind of ideas of social status in ways that, you know, kind of burial plots in the past have been laid out. And in terms of more like belief system wise, um, a lot of people who work in the later prehistoric in Britain believe that the idea of excretion of kind of disarticulating the skeleton after death is very similar to, say, if someone buries a sword in a grave, they usually break it. So that's kind of a symbolic thing, things like that. You know, there's definitely something.
3: Well, because I think, like, we, religion has a lot to play in it, because even if you look looking at the present day, like until very recently, cremation was a no-no for the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. So it's just like, and you see, yeah, you, you tend to see this sort of shift uh, in the archaeological record as well because usually, like, inhumation will make a comeback once uh, a population turns Christian. No. Yeah. So, but yeah. That's, that's, that's a... What a pleasant way to end this <laughs> segment, huh? Yeah. Uh, and now you know everything about our funeral arrangements. Yeah. Toss me in a pit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Ohio. Ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.
4: And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: All right, so we're back. And now it's everyone's favorite part of the episode, case studies. So Simona, I know you have a lot to talk about in terms of osteomancy and using guy. Strag—I don't—I don't think I've ever said that word out
3: loud. A stragali? Yeah, I never think. said out loud. Uh, <laughs> and for those of you who are not aware of it, it's, it is also my my favorite bone, and it looks like in undulates, it looks a little bit like a toy car. It is very
2: cute. It is. I, I do enjoy seeing them every so often. But why don't you take it away? Because I
3: know how much you love this stuff. <laughs> I suppose. One of the things that I'm particularly interested in is as you'd expect, the use of animal bones but, um, in both utilitarian and ritual functions, aside from, you know, eating. Um, and two things that particularly tickle my fancy for a reason or another are uh, osteomancy and astragali and how these turn up in the archaeological record. Um, now, osteomancy is a form of divination so it's literally just using the bones to divine the future and this has been done for thousands of years it by some cultures it's still practiced to this day and often actually the bone that is m- more most often used is actually the scapula so like the shoulder blade and uh, in this particular instance osteomancy would take the name of scapulomancy. but then again i'm just going to blow you away one once more uh, if there's any burning involved because that's what we find sometimes in the archaeological record, that's again what some cultures do to these days. They divine the future by actually burning the scapula and then see sort of the pattern that the cracks make on the shoulder blade. And in that case, uh, so like divining the future, using a scapula no, well, or any bone by heat exposure is called pyromancy. <laughs> but scapulomancy, very first evidence that we get, it's in China, about 5,300 before present. And it's what you may have heard of as the oracle bones. So they practiced pyromancy. because What we found were, for the most part, heat-exposed scapulae. And actually what's particularly cool about them is actually we find some of the first evidence of writing for that region, because mm-hmm. they were actually writing down the interpretation of those cracks on the, on the scapula. So that's really cool. And for the most part, really, if you look sort of across time and geographical regions, herbivores do tend to be the most commonly used species. It might be because, I don't know, because they're, Slightly larger in general, because I don't think yeah. sort of morphology between them and carnivores would make an awful lot of difference. Just like maybe the Canid and Felidae ones are slightly more rounded off, but while well, the herbivores tend to be more squared off. But other than that, I don't really see much of a difference. Like how one would be more suitable than the other, like other than size alone. Although other species are used, and again, if we go back at the the, the ethnographic. Record. There are some cultures, like in northeast of Siberia, you have the Kodiak who use seal scapulae. But then, an interesting thing about them specifically is that they use specifically seal scapulae because they um, they wish to foresee the outcome of whaling expeditions. Because know, okay, and why that's interesting? Because it seems in certain cultures, it, it seems that uh, scapulae of different species are used to predict different outcomes. Oh, that's cool. And that's something that you see with estragole as well, and I'll get to that in a minute. Just one quick point that I wanted to mention, sort of, if you're interested in the subject at all, sort of two museums to maybe like pop round and have a look at uh, the um, Boscastle Museum of Witchcraft in Cornwall and the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, because they do have a fair amount of both sort of contemporary and old material pertaining uh, animal bone used in is magical ritual the right work or just uh, divination we'll just go with divination that's ritual i mean magical routine things are ritual i think and now moving on to astragalite just said, you know little toy cars uh and i like (laughs) (laughs) them because astragalite i mean they're not solely used for ritual purposes i mean astragalite is one of the first evidence that we have of um dice Being used. Because again, if you look at herbivores, and that's more uh, much more so than carnivores, the morphology of it, where you have these, well, essentially you have six sides. And if you do throw an astragalus around, it will land much like a. What's the singular for dice? Die. A die? (laughs) Oh. It's like in a joke, die. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Well, much like a die, it will land on a particular side. So that's. Mostly, uh, we do see it being used in the archaeological record. On some sites, they have been argued to have been used as toys. And that is very much um, the case, even like present day, even sort of like, um, I mean, some populations still use uh, astragalus as as toys to these days. Because, again, because of their dice sort of appearance, uh, it's a great way to sort of like to play games to teach children how to count yeah, try it at home. Uh, I must say I have tried it myself. Um, I've, I've tried to sort of recreate because there's a Roman game called Knuckle Bones, which essentially oh, yeah. has a, a numerical value is, is assigned to each sort of side mm-hmm. of the astragalus. So depending, you know, when you toss it and then you, you see how many points you got. But as I said, um, as toys, I mean, they have been used in Europe as well up until very recently because I was speaking to a friend of mine who's from the Basque country and uh, her grandparents used to use them as toys, specifically oh, sheep really straggle, So it's something yeah. like, I, I haven't got a, a journal article that I can put in the reference because this is like 100% word of mouth it is <laughs> it's what I was told. <laughs> But as I said, yeah, herbivore stragglers le- le- lend themselves a lot better, sort of, for divination purposes as well. Mm. And um, a divination or something similar has been argued for a Saxon burial mm. in Britain, where so and I can tell you, it was a cremation, but the cremation was aso- associated with sort of around thirty sheep astragali. So um, that was a thing. <laughs> but again, ritualistic actions, like, well, I don't know why they've done that, reasons. But again, sort of going on from the scapulae, like you see the trend sort of with eye that in some cultures... Sort of uh, different species they use to predict different outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, one example that I found uh, in a book that's actually, if you're interested in rituals, a very, very interesting title It's called Social Zoo Archaeology okay. by Larissa Russell. So cool. And uh, it's a brilliant book. And um, they do go into the ethnographic record a lot, but nicely so. Makes mm-hmm. sense. It's all like, it is a fascinating read. And one example that was uh there, so it was the Thonga of Mozambique, where they do practice divination using a stragali, but they'll have different species to predict different outcomes. So, for example, if you sort of do your, well, throwing the bones. I wonder whether that's where the actually where the term was originated from so you throw the bones and it's the astragalus of sheep then you'll be determining Mm. sort of the future for the chief and his family and if you use goat instead you'll be looking at the sort of the future of commoners oh that's another thing
2: (laughs) i do love astragalus like they're just so nice and especially when they're like you know, really well preserved and nice and round, and they're just a, a great shaped bone.
3: But the beautiful things that they, they, often are because there's such a dense bone that it's virtually destructible like in in an excavation sort of scenario you have to try real hard to break one of those. Yeah, I mean hats off if you do because you're be. (laughs)
2: It's it's like a rock basically we have a lot in uh, my assemblage which speaking of uh, it's now time for me to talk uh, on end about my work finally my work matters (laughs) Anyway, so like we were talking about uh, before, my uh, research is on the Cowsy Caves, which are in Scotland, and they are pretty weird, basically. Um, like we were talking about with mixed uh, assemblages of animal and human remains, that's basically all these caves. There's there's a lot of work that's been done on the human remains, Some a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, Like juvenile heads, uh, skulls really, were placed at the entrance of uh, one of the caves, uh, the Sculptor's Cave, which was a whole big thing. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff being done with the human remains. But no one's really looked at the animal remains, so that's been my job for a while. And it's actually, it's been really interesting. I mean, you know, kind of comparing the two, especially because caves are such liminal weird spaces um so when people were looking at the human remains one of their interpretations were that you know caves being this liminal space that's not really outside and it's not really in the ground either and you know entrances and thresholds also being kind of a liminal space the fact that we have juveniles place here you know one where these sacrifices and two is it because they're you know not necessarily kids but they're not necessarily adults yet that they're here um so that kind of idea of liminality is really interesting when you look at animal bones because you know there's a lot of domestic bones in these assemblages there's a lot of cows there's a lot of you know sheep at play. So is it because they're not necessarily wild animals and they're kind of considered more in the domestic sphere? You know, it's a lot of stuff going on. And like I was saying earlier, it's a really good example of kind of the limitations in zooarchaeology because there's just so much here. There's so many weird animals there. We've got dog slash wolf uh, bones everywhere. We've got cats. Cats have been eating things. Like we were saying before, you know, gnawing might be an indicator that it's not ritual, but it probably is ritual. I don't know. There's a lot going on.
1: (laughs) Can I ask a question about your research? So when you're talking about cave spaces being a liminal space, I mean, this is where we often see the first places of like um, ritual. You know, I think there's the famous bear cave. Uh, there was, what was the, mm-hmm. the recent cave explorer a couple of years ago in Africa where there was a number of caves?
2: Oh, yeah, so yeah, yeah.
1: I, I can't remember can't that at the moment as well. I, I'm not going to go do a Google search on the fly because I'll get it wrong. But the, the point is that it seems that cave spaces have been for thousands of years uh, ritual spaces. However, is it possible that because cave spaces are seen as a ritual space that we are ignoring other places of ritual that we by defining kind of like or making a cave seem to be the ritual space is it actually a ritual space or is everywhere a ritual space is the division of labor within a house ritual space you know and yeah i mean how do you feel about that the definition of ritual space
2: I mean, it's just hard. Like, honestly, especially speaking as someone who's doing their PhD research on this, and, you know, as a PhD uh, candidate, I want to be able to, you know, say definitively, this is a ritual space. This is the reasons why. But I mean, that's kind of the problem I'm running into. So at least in my caves, you know, like I said, there's gnawing going on. There's clearly animal activities. So I I wanted to say, you know, hey, it's probably not ritual but then you also get a bunch of animal bones are being actively you know burnt, actively uh cut up lots of animal bones being cut up so there's clearly something else going on here it's every time i think that this is not ritual or every time i think this is definitely ritual something happens where it, it kind of contradicts that and i think that's kind of the the case of ritual as a thing in general there's a lot of conflicting aspects to ritual but i also think that it's just kind of an inherent thing because ritual isn't necessarily a logical thing you know
1: so i'm just wondering with all of its kind of like prescriptive processes its metaphors its analogies the way in which we approach life after death or death after Mm -hmm. death and the rules that we have or putting everything in its place and making logical conclusions and, you know, having not having, coming back to the start of the episode, not having control over things that uh, we might like have control is then archaeology itself a ritual.
2: Oh yeah, definitely.
3: It's a ritual and kind of pretending that we're not all going to die. We're just systematically, systematically looking through ancient people's rubbish yeah biding our time which which would be really frowned upon like at present day <laughs> do
1: you think that's possibly in a bid that hopefully in the future future archaeologists will kind of look at us and treat our remains with some respect and sort of like a pay it forward kind of ritual way i mean what really does separate ritual life from anything else i mean you know you know because you were talking about rituals that seem to have like functions as well you know like Rituals don't necessarily have to be associated with burials, but at the same time, uh, you can understand a burial context with ritual elements in it, even though the yeah. burial itself could be a ritual. And the stuff in the caves, Alex, um, are, are, are we talking about funerary rites here, or are we talking about other rituals?
2: Well, that's the thing, is that there is also clearly some kind of funerary rites being going on because there are so many human remains here. That's kind of the idea and that they were probably excarnated, uh, probably they were disarticulated somewhere else and then brought to this cave. So again, there's the complication that there's clearly something intentional going on here. It's just kind of trying to piece the two together. So that's kind of like the big next step for me is uh, kind of comparing the two. I'm going to be looking at all the human remains, kind of seeing how they treated them in comparison to how they treated the animal remains. It's a whole big thing.
1: It is difficult. You know, like this whole thing yeah, no. could be this could be a podcast in itself where we literally go on about it in this in circles. But it is important to note that there is valid research that can be done in this. It's just because it's just because there's a possibility of ritual falling yeah. into a circle doesn't mean you can't get something meaningful out of it. You know, I think it's it, it's very, you, you can be very quick to kind of say, well, it goes in circles and circles and means that we can't prove anything. But actually, I think archaeology is very special in the fact that not only do we know what we don't know, we know our limits. You know, we yeah. know to which degree we can be certain or we're kind of have a interest in something. Mm-hmm. I mean I think I think it can be something really fascinating and I, I think I think it's really cool there's obviously a reason why you're doing your PhD it's not just because you need to do a PhD you obviously find it interesting oh no I love
2: having- it like that's <laughs> the thing is I love it and it, it just comes to the problems when you ask me to explain it because it's like it's just very hard and that's well that's what I want the takeaway to be for this episode is ritual is very complicated <laughs>
1: No, it, it definitely is. Definitely is. Simona, any uh, any closing thoughts there?
3: I think that uh, ritual is a very challenging subject, but I think sort of in the lines of what you have already said, just because something is challenging, it doesn't mean that we should be shying away from it.
2: Yeah, we did a whole podcast on it. I, don't know. <laughs> I think that is another episode of Argue Animals done, and as always you know find us on twitter on facebook uh, ask us questions if you want and um yeah Uh, also of course uh check our show notes uh which will be up on uh archaeology and it will have all of our sources and photos everything you need to kind of understand what we're talking about uh so It's been great, and this has been Alex
3: and Simona. Yeah, have a nice day, evening, night, life, (laughs) sometime. Thank you for listening to Archeo Animals. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. You can find us on Twitter at ArcheoAnimals. Also, the views expressed on the podcast are those of ourselves, the hosts, and guests, and do not necessarily represent those of our institution, employers, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.
0: This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This
2: has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.